0: Granger catches, shoots for three to win it! He hits it! Danny Granger at the buzzer! Hits a three-point shot! And the Indiana Pacers have won the game here in Phoenix! Oh! He has some smothered chicken on that one! Smothered chicken! Shotgun winding
1: down, they turn it over! Oladipo kicks it! Back out! But Donovic for
2: three! Bang! What's going on? Right now, i got a special episode before Christmas of Setting the Pace, episode number 13. Joining us right now is former Pacer big man, Scott Pollard. Scott, good to have you on, man.
3: Hey, thanks for having me. Sure, and, and folks, that is 11-year NBA veteran, NBA champion, former Indiana Pacer, and the Stopper himself, Scott Pollard. Oh, God. <laughs> <laughs> the uh, Stopper. Uh, May, come name on! One I, guy that stopped Jack. <laughs> <laughs> hey, maybe no one ever stopped him, but we saw those battles back in the day in the Western Conference playoffs, and uh, they were always a uh, thrill to watch. So, Scott, very excited well, to speak with you today. Good times, good times.
2: And don't forget, former reality TV star too. We can't leave that out if we're going to get technical here. <laughs>
1: That well, yeah, true. and I've murdered people in, in very, very small-budget horror films, too. So, uh, I mean, if we're going to go through the whole resume, it'll take all night. I've done a lot of uh, stuff over the years.
3: <laughs> oh, man, I- I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to have to uh, watch that. You'll have to tell me uh, what it was. W- what film was that, Scott? Uh,
1: well, there was one called x Man. Uh, that uh, I believe they're filming the third one right now. I got cut out of the main character after I murdered everybody in the first one and uh, had a scheduling conflict during the filming of the second one. So they've got a new Axeman now. But the original Axeman, I believe, is on iTunes. um, And you can buy it and watch me murder a bunch of people. (laughs) Uh, Then, uh, let's see, I've also been in a a small-budget film called uh, Destination Planet Negro, which is a satirical film Um, where in the old 1930s ish of America the prominent black scientists get together and uh, make a rocket and they're going to go populate another planet so they can just have, you know, because they they again, this is satire they uh, collectively decide that that America or or this earth isn't good for black people uh, no matter what, so they go to another planet to planet it to uh, populate it and live there. And instead of that, they get into a wormhole and pop out in current times. And they think they're on a different planet because, well, at the time the movie was released, we had a black president, uh, earbuds, phones, all that stuff. So it's kind of a funny film. I played a bad guy in that movie as well. Anyway, I, I mean, I could go on. It'll take forever. Uh, A couple other small-budget films. I actually made one. I starred in one, and I produced it myself uh, in Kansas. It's called The Profit, P-R-O-F-I-T, and it's not released. You can't watch that one. Um, But I showed it here in Indiana. I've got some copies of it. Uh, If you're really nice, uh, if anybody reaches out to me, we may have a private screening. But uh, I don't think I'm ever going to distribute that one. It was was fun to do, but uh, uh, ultimately I just don't think it's something that I was going to put any more uh, effort into.
3: Well, hey, if, if if we're lucky enough, would would love to uh, be a part of that private screening. But hey, I, I, as we mentioned, you've done so many interesting things. But uh, in our mind, one of the most interesting thing you've done is playing the NBA. And uh, I was thinking about, it. I mean, you've played with so many, so many great players, uh, Hall of Famers, All Stars. One of the guys who's actually still going on right now is LeBron James, and you were on that team that LeBron was able to will to the NBA Finals and back in 2007. I believe LeBron was only about 22 years old, but what was his leadership like back then at just such a young age, getting that team to the Finals?
1: Well, he he physically dragged us uh, to the Finals, and I don't think anybody can dispute that because the the roster we had. There was, I think, five or six of us that were over 30 years old, and then the rest of us were you know, no names or non all stars. I don't want to, this is big boy basketball though. You know, I don't want to hurt anybody's feelings, but we, we got to the finals because of LeBron and because we had role players that understood if we hang on tight enough, he can take us there. Um, because of the veterans, because of the guys that were smart enough to know that. And then some of the young guys, uh, didn't quite understand that, but went along for the ride. Um, but, uh, his leadership wasn't great back then. Again, he was 22 years old-ish. It was his fourth year in the league, I believe. Uh, and so, you know, when a 22-year-old, if I'd have been 22 years old, as strong-willed as I was, and having gone through four years of college, I was a rookie when I was 22. So, you know, if if I'd have been the the best player on the team, which I wasn't ever in the NBA, to try to be the leader of guys that are, where, you know, almost half the roster is over 30, that's it's a tall order. And, you know, he, he did have respect for us, but at the same time, we're sitting there going, hey, man, you know, we're at the end of the bench not playing consistent minutes. We're 10-, 15-, 20-minute guys at the most. You've got to be the guy that's leading us. And he's like, well, you guys are the ones with the experience. And so he deferred to us, but I think a little too much. But, um, you know, anyway, we got there and we got to the finals and we got swept by the, the absolute machine of, that was the, the Spurs at that time and Tim Duncan. And uh, we just, uh, they they took care of us in four <laughs> games.
3: It's always interesting hearing uh, the perspective from the inside because it is a tall task at that age. Um, and it, it, the fact that he's still going at the level that he's at now, and I'm sure you can attest for it, that he's been able to take on way more leadership over the years and really just, it, it, he's not looking towards anyone now. Uh, everyone's looking towards him. So, uh, Oh, absolutely. That's what years do to you. Oh, of course, of course. But uh, playing a little bit of fantasy over here, out of some of the, the great teams that you were on, two teams that maybe never quite fulfilled their championship potentials were that 2002 Kings team and the 2004 Indiana Pacers. And I was just curious, if those teams ever faced off in an NBA Finals, who do you think would have had the edge?
1: The Kings. Um, the, the, the Pacers team was a very, very good unit. Uh, however, there was a lot of chemistry issues. We had good talent that worked together most of the time, uh, but uh, there were there were things going on in that locker room that were overcome as opposed to um, being positives. And, 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 and having said that, on the court, a better defensive team than the Kings team of that uh, that you're mentioning, but the Kings team that uh, you you we're, we're talking about the absolute best chemistry of any team I've ever been on Won a lot of games we probably shouldn't have won just because we got along so well, but also made other teams, even good defensive teams that we'd come out East because back then it was like the East plays defense, the West scores. We made teams in the East try to run with us and they couldn't. And, That's why I think it would be the Kings easily. Uh, I'm not saying it'd be a sweep, but I think it would be the Kings team because of our ability to lock down on defense when we needed to. But really, we discombobulated other teams' game plans so badly. They were just always on their heels trying to figure out, okay, what offense are they running? They would scout us, and we'd go out and run completely different plays because our offenses were mostly read offenses based on this guy does that, then we're going to do something else. So it's hard to scout that. Uh, so, the the Kings team had a lot more razzle dazzle, a lot more chemistry. The Pacers team had slightly better defense, uh, but I would also say that the Pacers team would have been on their heels the entire series, and and the Kings would have would have prevailed.
3: Could we get a, a seven game prediction out of you? In that series,
1: five at the most. I, I'm not saying oh, wow. we sweep them, but I, I don't. I don't think it would be a seven-game series or even a six-game series because um, that Kings team was was a buzzsaw. We we came in and shocked people, uh, and teams that prided themselves in defense ended up trying to score 115 points with us, and they end up scoring 90. You know that's mm-hmm. which was 10 points above their norm. Uh, but that that was that was our team as a Pacer. That 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 was our motto: it was like we're going to grind it out. We're going to score in the 80s and we're going to beat teams. Well, that Kings team would have made that Pacers team play in the hundreds, and that King that Pacers team couldn't score in the hundreds.
3: Yeah, Scott, that, as a casual NBA fan, people talk about that Kings team all the time. I mean they they are really I was a fan favorite, a team favorite of all NBA fans.
2: Yeah, and I and I, I got a couple questions here for you, Scott. Um, I guess I'll ask you the first one here. And uh, speaking of Sacramento and Indiana, what was that trade like when you heard you were going to the Pacers? I'm just curious. Uh, you you seem pretty close with that Sacramento team. Was it hard for you to leave Sacramento to come to Indiana?
1: Uh, yeah, I was pissed. <laughs> <laughs> uh, first of all, uh, my second year in the NBA, there was a lockout, and it ended in about February. And When it ended, I went into workout work out in Detroit and was informed by one of my teammates that it was in the paper that morning that I had been traded to Atlanta, uh, which nobody had told me about other than when I got to the arena. And at that point, I hadn't even spoken to the general manager, which made me wait outside his office for over an hour before he finally let me come in and talk to him and he admitted to me that I had been traded to Atlanta. Uh, I say that because of what I'm about to tell you. In 2003, 2002-2003 uh, season, uh, I had fractured the sacrum bone, which is the bottom bone of your spine. It's in between your pelvis. Uh, it was a stress fracture. Yeah. And uh, I sat out four months of that season, came back in the spring, had some good games. One of them notably was against the Indiana Pacers, which I had something like 15 uh Points and 15 rebounds, or somewhere in there. I, I'm not exactly sure of the stats, but it was a it was a good strong double double against Jermaine O'Neal, Brad Miller, and Jeff Foster and Austin Crozier. So, note of, that summer, the the season ends. We we get in the playoffs in Dallas. I think believe uh, I believe ended our our playoff hopes that year in 2003 as a King. Uh, and that summer, the draft is happening, and I'm playing cards with my friends back in Kansas, which was home base always during my NBA career. And uh, they said, hey, switch on the draft. It's on tonight. And that's when I found out uh, that with the 13th pick of the NBA draft, I watched myself get traded from in from Sacramento to Indiana without any prior knowledge or consent or anything. Now, I get it. NBA players are pork bellies to be traded, uh, bought, sold, whatever, at the whim of billionaires. I understand that. That's a little bit of a, uh, a reference to an Eddie Murphy movie uh, but called Trading Places. Uh, but anyway, um, it, it was a shock to me. I wasn't happy about it. Um, didn't want to go to Indiana. Didn't want to go back to the Eastern Conference. I loved being in California. That's where I grew up. Uh, and so it was, uh, it was rough on me because, again, it's a reminder of how it, the, the NBA is a business. All professional sports are a business. And there's only loyalty on one side. There, there is no loyalty. Uh, so as a player, or um, let me back that up, as a fan, uh, sometimes play, fans get mad when players go for a bigger contract or they leave teams to go get paid more money. Well, uh, I wanted to be loyal to every single team I was on. I didn't want to be anywhere else but Detroit, and then I didn't want to be anywhere else but Atlanta, And then I didn't want to be anywhere else but Sacramento. And then I didn't want to be anywhere else but Indiana. I didn't want to be anywhere else but Cleveland. I didn't want to be anywhere else but Boston. And those situations change. General managers decide what they're going to do, and you get shipped off to another team. So there's no loyalty. So fans need to understand that when players do take a better contract, it's because they know that. It's because, hey, this team could trade me or cut me anytime they want. They eat my contract, and I'm unemployed. Yeah. So they have to understand that fans are doing what they can, or players are doing what they can for their families, for themselves. And yeah. and that's who you have to look out for. This is a business. This isn't uh, amateur athletics. It's big boy basketball. Yeah,
2: that's, that's interesting that you say that, and I think sometimes we as fans don't see that side of it, and it's cool to see the other side from the players. And uh, I guess my second question is, we were talking about that Kings team that faced the Lakers, and, there's a lot of people that feel like the the Kings pretty much got screwed in that. So can you take us back to that series against Shaq and Kobe uh, with the whole Tim Donahue thing and, you know, that game specifically where the Kings pretty much just got screwed?
1: Well, um, that series was going off, and and uh, uh, quick back story, two years after that, or no, I'm sorry, six years after that, when I was teammates with Brian Scalabrini in Boston, he told me that at the time he was with the New Jersey Nets, and they weren't even scouting the Lakers until game five because they just knew we were going to win the series. They knew we had smoked them in the regular season. So it was a shock to even the team that was in the Eastern Conference champion and they were waiting for us in the finals, uh, because he had Jason Kidd, and they had just gone through the Eastern Conference, and they were waiting on the Western Conference Finals to end, and they weren't even scouting the Lakers until Game Five because they just didn't think there was any chance the Lakers were going to beat us. That's how confident everybody was in the whole league that we were the best team in the league. But um, you know, we we had some bad luck in certain situations, like uh, for example, Vlade Divac in Game Four. We're up game. We're up two to one. And in game four in L.A., um, Vlade, uh, at the end of the game, instead of fouling Shaq uh, underneath the basket and potentially giving Shaq a three-point play because Shaq probably would have dunked it and gotten the foul called, we're uh, up, I think, one point, maybe two. And so instead of the ball bouncing around the rim, and as every big man has ever played basketball has taught – if you're playing against somebody bigger than you or as big as you, just keep the ball away from the basket. Don't give up an easy two. So Vlade swaps the ball as it's bouncing off the rim away from Shaquille O'Neal, and it happens to be a perfect pass to Robert Horry. That's just bad luck. And Robert Horry does what Robert Horry did at the time and knocks down a three-pointer and wins the game in game four. Instead of being 3-1, which we should have been, we were leading that whole game, we ended up being 2-2. Um, so... There was a, there were scuffles, and there had been some black blood between the two teams. It was a heck of a rivalry. We saw each other twice in the preseason, four times in the regular season, and we have been playing them in the playoffs before, even back to 99. Mm-hmm. So uh, the, this was the team we were familiar with, and we saw each other a lot. That's how rivalries are built. So leading up to that, we were thinking, oh, man, we didn't get screwed in game four Vlade did what he should have done. Nobody blamed Vlade for that loss. It, it was just Robert Horry did what Robert Horry did. Big shot Rob. Well, then we go back to Game 5. We win Game 5. We go back for Game 6. And we're thinking, okay, we're going to go smoke these guys in their home court and, and get to the finals. And Game 6 was ugly. It, it, it was not a, a, a correct game. It, it seemed shady. Uh, and people mentioned Tim He He mentioned stuff about that game but he didn't ref that game so i'm not going to talk about him because he wasn't there now i'm not saying i disagree with some of the things he said but at the same time i'm not going to give him credit for what he says about that game since he didn't ref that game but the guys that did ref that game know what they did it was not correct uh there were a lot of it was more than mistakes It, it, it seemed Incorrect to the point that Ralph Nader wrote a letter to the commissioner of the NBA. Ralph Nader who wow. is not any way, shape, or form connected to basketball in any way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, it was incorrect. But that's why you play seven games, because supposedly the best team is going to win in seven games. Most of the time, that's how it works. Well, we had game seven back at home, and we tricked it off. We went home and crapped ourselves. We did not play well. We couldn't shoot the ball. Our, our three-point shooters were ridiculously low percentage. I, again, I don't know, remember the numbers. It's been 15 years um, or, or so, but we we absolutely had our opportunity to go back home. Home court advantage because we had the best record in the league. We had home court advantage throughout the playoffs. That's why you were in home court advantage, and we had Game Seven at home when we tricked it off. So, yeah, you can say all you want about Game Six, but we had Game Seven and we lost Game Seven. We couldn't recover emotionally from what happened in Game Six or Game Four, if you want to add that to it. But we should have been tougher mentally and emotionally, and we should have gone out there and put the screws to those guys like we did in the regular season and most of that series, including the games we lost. Uh, because again, Game Four, I don't think we lo- we were losing at all in the whole game, except for when Robert Horry hit that shot. I don't think I think we led the entire game. Or it was like 46 out of 48 minutes. They got a lead for a second in the fourth quarter for like a minute. Yes. So we were we were the better team, and we went home on game seven, and we didn't recover. We didn't play well. We didn't play our game. We played terribly. I had a decent game myself, but that doesn't mean that our team played well. I wasn't one of the guys that our team was leaning on for offensive statistics, and I didn't right. play most of the fourth quarter because – Rick Adelman, our coach, who I have a lot of faith in, was trying to win the game and thought, you know what, we're better with Vlade and Chris on the floor. So he put them in the court. Mm-hmm. And we didn't win the game. Uh, but that's why uh, when people mention game six or that re- that series or whatever, nobody could ever say anything about the refereeing in game seven. And at that point, it's a one-game series, and we went out there and crapped ourselves and did not win that series at home in front of the best NBA fans that I ever played in front of so I don't take the game six travesty as hard as some fans because I take game seven really hard because that's where I look at it like this was all in our hands and we lost that series game six was stolen from us absolutely but that's why as I said you play seven games in the pros to determine who's probably going to be the best team we were the best team, and we didn't prove it when we had the chance to at home in front of our crowd.
3: Oh, man. I, I You know, you almost wonder if that was the Kings' best chance at winning a championship. I like to think certain teams have a specific window, and uh, I think a lot of fans think that that, that Kings team was a championship-worthy team. And, uh, you know, hey, as you so mentioned, everybody remembers the Ori – Play it's when you think of just clutch moments and kind of his career. It's it's probably always a highlight that that comes in within the first few seconds of showing Robert Ory highlights. Um, but Scott, I had, I, had a, I had a question that kind of relates um, to today's game. Now, with the NBA in the center position having evolved so much since you playing game uh, since your playing days, as a guy who only attempted two three pointers in his career, <laughs> do you think you would, do you think you would have been able to adapt to the game today? where the center position is asked to shoot a lot more threes. Uh,
1: let me uh, give you a little backstory. I uh, have a question for you. Who is the uh, career leader in three-point percentage in a history of 121 years of Kansas basketball?
3: I'm starting to get about. a feeling it might be Scott Pollard.
1: Yeah. I mean, I only shot one,
3: <laughs> but I made it. It wasn't hey, right for It Prince. counts. Um, <laughs> So
1: here, here's uh, that, that's what I learned from my college coach, Roy Williams, who's the head coach of North Carolina right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, be the best teammate you can be. The NBA, my, free, my two three-point attempts were both last-second hurls. It's like I spotted up and shot a three. It was, oh, the clock's running down, and I just threw up the ball from half-court or three-quarters-court or whatever. So that counts as an attempt. <laughs> that's the only two three-pointers I shot in the NBA. Also, when I was in the NBA, I played with Joe Dumars. I played with Peja Stojakovic, Mike Bibby, Jason Williams, Chris Webber, Vlade Divac. I played with Reggie Miller. Mm -hmm. I played with Ray Allen. I played with LeBron James. I played with some of the all-time greatest three-point shooters that have ever touched a basketball. And if you think for a second that I'm not better than all of those guys, (laughs) all of them, (laughs) at setting picks and getting rebounds then you're incorrect so i knew what i was better at than all of those guys and i did what i was better at than them and i let them do what they were better at than me which was knock down three-point shots and if they happen to miss after i knocked down their guy with a screen and i went for the offensive rebound i'd get an offensive rebound and put it back in which is what i was better at than all of those guys so People say, oh, well, you can't play in this league the way it is now. Well, there are guys in this league right now that don't shoot a lot of threes that are big guys, or they don't shoot threes at all. Second of all, just because I didn't doesn't mean I can't. Okay. In the summer times when I would go back home to Kansas and play with the guys, and I'm bringing the ball up the court, and I'm shooting threes, and I'm knocking them down. The number one thing I got after pickup games with the young guys was, man, I didn't know you could do all that. (laughs) Well, hey, kids. Holding you back. (laughs) You're one of 450 of the best players in the world, and I was one of them for over a decade. Mm -hmm. You don't get there unless you can do some stuff. Right. So just because I didn't shoot threes during my career, if I had been on a terrible team with nobody that could shoot three-pointers – I probably would have shot some three-pointers. Yeah. I probably would have made some all-star games had I been on terrible teams. Yeah. But the only team I ever played on that wasn't in the playoffs was my rookie year. And we almost made the playoffs. And I was playing with Grant Hill and Joe Diamaris, uh, and, and those, that crew, Lindsey Hunter. So I attribute the lack of three-point proficiency on my part during my NBA career in college Simply due to the fact that I was a smart player that knew what I was better at than all of my teammates. And I did that all my teammates.
3: Oh, 100%, Sky. If I could sum you up in one word, I would say winner. Because you also can't sleep on your success at Kansas. So you're not able to stay in the league for 11 years unless you're doing what you do very well. And uh, you summed it up perfectly.
2: Yeah, so uh to wrap things up here, Scott, I know we gotta let you go. Uh can we ask you just a couple rapid fire questions to close this conversation? Sounds good. All right, so my, my first question is who is your favorite teammate at Kansas? Jacob. Okay. And uh, roommate all four years.
0: <laughs> oh, that's awesome.
2: That's cool. Uh and, and as far as the NBA goes, who would you say your your favorite teammate in the NBA?
1: I gotta go with Vladi Diva.
2: And what exactly would you say uh was your reasoning for that selection? For Vladimir? Yeah. What did you just learn a lot from him or is he just a funny guy like
1: uh Both. He's a he's a prankster, he was uh a jokester, uh, played practical jokes all the time. Great teammate, great leader. Uh there's a reason he's the GM of the franchise that was a laughing stock and laughing at him and, and uh they're actually taking for fifth place right now and Two years ago, people thought he was crazy for trading Marcus Cousins' way. But um, the thing about Vlade is that he uh, under-promises and over-delivers. And that's how I live my life. And so it's it's he's a guy that I've always looked up to physically and metaphorically. Uh, so, you know, being teammates with him was was great. I learned a lot. And I can't say that about everybody I played with.
3: And, Scott, I got a question over here. I, I wouldn't be regarded as uh, the president of the Jermaine O'Neal fan club if I didn't ask what was it like playing with and against Jermaine O'Neal?
1: Uh, playing against him was easy
3: on the defense. <laughs> <laughs> um, I love
1: Jermaine. I, I wish that he lived in Indiana so we could hang out more. I really like being around Jermaine. He's a great dude. Uh, was one of my least favorite teammates uh, that I ever played with. And um, it was just uh, it was a lateness thing. You know, I, I, when I went to college um, – when I was five minutes early, my coach considered me 10 minutes late. Mm. And so I've always lived my life. I'm, I'm the first guy there. I'm always the first guy there. When I And I'm in business now and I have business meetings. I'm always the first one there. And I sit there and I wait because I would never, ever give anybody else the impression that I think my time is more valuable than theirs. And if I happen to be late, which we all have situations come up occasionally that force you without your ability to do anything about it become late to a meeting or whatever i re- i let people know hey listen something happened i am going to be late and Jermaine as much as i love him was never the first guy he was never even the second guy he was always the last guy to every plane bus train practice game ever and that was hard on me just being the way that i was wired am wired in that I'm never going to suppose that my time is more valuable than anybody else's. And so I, I don't want to dissuade you from being the president of the Jermaine O'Neal fan club. <laughs> hey, I'm it makes perfect club.
2: sense. It makes perfect sense if he's always late and he's a diva, uh, more worried about his hair than he is it. about getting on the podcast on time. It he, makes perfect sense. He's talking about
3: me now. <laughs> <laughs> I was a big fan, but I uh, that's some interesting insight that uh, you gave that we would never know unless you were on that team. I think I think
2: we knew about Jermaine O'Neal's uh, diva self in the NBA. But uh, <laughs> uh, last 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 rapid fire question for you. So we we all know that you have uh, amazing hairstyles in the NBA. What was your all time favorite hairstyle that you came up with?
1: Um, gee, I don't know. <laughs> you know, <laughs> at, at the time, well, I did everything. That I could possibly do, I could never do an afro, which I was really mad about. I always wanted to have an afro once, couldn't pull that off. But uh, my hair is too stringy; it wouldn't even perm. So, uh, but it's—I uh, I would think that the back in the late '90s or 2000s when I had the the blonde hair that grew out halfway, yes, uh, that, that was kind of a grunge look at the time, and it fit the time really well. Uh, but then I'd also I got close second, maybe tied would be the the blonde mohawk that I had in Cleveland mm-hmm. uh, because then you know all of a sudden other guys in the NBA started wearing mohawks, so I felt like, oh wow, you know, why did I dominate everyone offensively and defensively my whole career <laughs> joke?
2: The founder. Uh,
1: but <laughs> people started copying me uh, in the hairstyle department, so I thought, hey, yeah, all right.
2: I, I was I'm a fan influencer. of that triple ponytail. The triple ponytail was one of my favorites.
1: I think I'm the only player in the that a ponytail, along with being number 62 and number 66. There's only <laughs> two number 62s, and no one's ever been number 66. Oh,
3: wow. I do have. Well, you are a trendsetter, so we'll see if someone follows that. Uh- <laughs>
2: Yeah, well, go ahead and let us know about the uh, Planet Pollard, uh, Pollard Podcast and uh, where we can find you out on Twitter.
1: Uh, find me at Scott Pollard 31 on Twitter, Scott with one T. And uh, on Instagram, I'm ScottP31, again, one T. And uh, on the Planet Pollard Podcast, we're on iTunes, SoundCloud, the Googles. We're everywhere on the, on the, the Planet Pollard Podcast. In fact, I'm due, overdue for one. I'm, I need to record one tonight, I think. Do it do it you should That yeah. people
3: want to hear from you yeah so yeah check us out we have a lot of
1: fun i've had a couple of hall of fame nba players and uh, actor you know also
3: suburban dads just doing this
1: interview raising kids and you know tasting different alcoholic beverages
3: well i do definitely have a couple things to add to my list such as ax man and the planet Pollard podcast so I will be busy. But, Scott, I want to thank you very much for coming on the show. You're a class act, and I really enjoyed this time.
1: Thanks for having me, guys. We'll talk to you soon.
2: Sugar Ray Leonard, Roberto Duran, Marvelous Marvin Hagler, and Thomas Hearns. Legends, whose four-way rivalry defined one of the greatest eras in boxing history. Relive their decade of dominance in the new Showtime sports documentary, The Kings, a four-part series premiering Sunday, June 6th, only on Showtime.
4: Have you heard about the 2018 study that showed half of prenatal vitamins tested had unacceptable levels of heavy metals? No? Well, now you have. I'm Kat, mother of three and founder of Ritual, the company making traceability the new standard in the supplement industry. I remember staring at my prenatal vitamins and finding all these things I was trying to avoid, high amounts of heavy metals, synthetic colorants, and unnecessary ingredients. So, at four months pregnant, I quit my job and started Ritual, because I believe that all women deserve to know what they're putting in their bodies and why. I'm so proud of our prenatal vitamin. The ingredients are 100% traceable, it's third-party tested for microbes and heavy metals, and recently received the Purity Award from the Clean Label Project. You see, we trace like a mother because, let's be honest, no one cares quite like a mother. But don't just take my word for it. Trace for yourself with 25% off at ritual.com prenatal.